Welcome to Street Cred, powered by Cowan's Washington Research Group. Each episode, Cowan's policy experts drill down to bring you up to speed on key issue areas. We call this series Street Cred since Cowan's Washington Research Group patrols the all-important intersection of Wall Street and K Street. Since we cover health and biotech, financial and housing, trade and tax, as well as smart political analysis, you could say that tuning into Street Cred will keep you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick Weisenstein of Collins Washington Research Group. Uh, thanks for joining us on the latest episode of our podcast, The Monthly Checkup. Well, we hope this makes a handy companion piece to our weekly checkup, uh, the written product that Eric Osaroff and I collaborate on. Uh, the weekly checkup looks at the latest in healthcare policy on Capitol Hill and in the administration each month. And we want to do the same with the monthly checkup. Uh, look what's going on at the FDA in the coming weeks, along with a breakdown of other issues of importance to drug makers and the drug supply chain. Uh, I'm overjoyed to be joined once again by Mike McCann, a founding member uh, of Provision Policy, which covers the FDA and all things biopharma for a number of clients. Mike and his two partners, Cole Werbel and Ramsey Baghdadi, uh, all cut their teeth at the pharma bio newsletter, The Pink Sheet, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. Uh, Mike was the editor there for 30 uh 20 years, I should say. I almost made you older than you are, Mike. Sorry. Um, Cole Werbel's dad started the pink sheet in 1930-something or another, and I, they've really, as I mentioned, covered the entire uh, FDA and pharma, pharma world for really their entire adult lives. So nobody better to talk to about these things than Mike. So with that, uh, let's dive into our first segment, which we call the state of play at the FDA. Uh, the big event this month and this really will be a big event, uh, rare that you can say that this is probably something that'll be uh, talked about in people well beyond just uh, geek circles of uh, drug pricing type folks and FDA type folks. But there's an advisory committee meeting to discuss the COVID-19 vaccines. And it's probably not an overstatement to say that this may very well be the highest profile committee meeting in the agency's history. So Mike, um, what should I expect? Am I gonna be a come away with this from this adcom knowing what vaccines are gonna be available and when, so I can figure out when I'm gonna be able to go back to bars and concerts and things. Uh, is that how this is gonna work out? Well, I got some bad news for you there, Rick, probably not. And, and not just because I'm pretty sure that you've been banned from all the bars and concert venues in the greater DC area already anyway, and that, that will continue after COVID, I'm afraid. But more importantly, this particular meeting on vaccines set for October 22nd, um, is, I think, designed, at least from FDA's perspective, uh, to, for them, it'll be a victory if this is the most anticlimactic big event in the agency's history, where uh, potentially uh, thousands or even millions of people tune in to the webcast, and it might even be televised, and come away thinking, wow, that was dull. Um, their goal at this first meeting is I think really just to get the committee to agree that the that the standards they've already articulated for COVID-19 vaccines are appropriate and should be uh, used when it comes time to actually review a candidate that has data to support it. You know, we're where are we? We're October 5th. The meeting's still 17 days away. Uh, certainly, it's you know given the, the, the state of play in 2020 where it, anything can happen, I guess you can't rule out that, that uh, one of the vaccine candidates will claim to have 
uh, you know, a successful trial that's, that could be discussed at that meeting. Definitely not FDA's intent, and that would definitely be a, a true shocker in a lot of, uh, on a lot of levels. So instead, I think the purpose of this meeting is really part of the pressure FDA has been under to show some transparency. They've actually been, um, for those of us who follow the agency, they've been quite transparent about their standards and expectations, but uh, given the, the politics around all this, they've been under a, a incredible, extraordinary pressure to prove that they're following the science and not just going to approve uh, anything they can before election day. Um, so at this point, it seems uh, you know, like things are on track for that to be a review of the standards FDA has already articulated. The advisory committee will no doubt uh, say a bunch of fun and exciting things along the way, uh, but I don't think anyone seriously disagrees with FDA's approach to these vaccines. And then things will get exciting uh, if and when some of these uh, ongoing phase three trials actually reach enough events to, to uh, have data to review. At that point, FDA will start bringing the committee back. They've promised now very clearly that each vaccine that has data and could potentially be either formally approved or given an emergency use authorization will get a separate review and discussion by the same committee. But that's going to happen after October 22nd and not uh, on October 22nd. So, you know, that it should be a, a meeting where a, a lot of people uh, will come away uh, uh, probably bored and confused, overly stimulated by the discussion. Um, this being the, you know, the, the, the Trump administration, there's always the possibility that, you know, someone else could step in and take over the agenda at the last minute. Um, I do think, honestly, with the, with the president himself uh, now being diagnosed with COVID-19, uh, they probably got too many other things to worry about than to um, try to hijack the agenda of this particular meeting at this point. So what you're telling me is the chances of uh, me getting back to bars and concerts anytime soon, regardless of the fact that the police might be stopping me from doing it, are low? Yes, and, and then unfortunately, of course, there, there is actually a, a great deal now that, you know, I think is pretty, pretty clear for folks thinking ahead here. We, we still do have the scientific uncertainty about whether any of these vaccines actually work. Um, and I hate to be a downer about that, but there are, you know, at this point, four of them uh, in phase three trials, but one of those four is technically on hold in the U.S. So kind of three candidates that are that are actively enrolling subjects here. And the hope is that, you know, at least one of them actually works, if not all of them. Um, but even so, uh, that would lead you to finding out for sure, you know, potentially in November, uh, having it be uh, technically approved or authorized in December, but in quantities that are very limited. And Rick, uh, unless you're, uh, a, you know, a frontline healthcare worker or far sicker than I realize, you're probably not in that initial pool is going to get vaccinated. I think if all goes well by this time next year, um, you know, anyone who really needs a vaccine can, anyone who, who's eligible for the vaccine can get it and we can start talking about uh, a vaccine having restored something like uh, normal life, but that's think, uh, not going to happen soon. And I think those are points that some people may be surprised at, to hear at the uh, ADCOM because what the FDA has said, and, and they're looking to get 50% efficacy or 60% effect, efficacy, and that might not be something that people realize that this is not, they're not even at all talking about this being something like the polio vaccine or the measles vaccine, which I think most people believe that's what they know about a vaccine. You take the vaccine, you're good to go for 
an extended period of time, maybe forever. Yep, and that's there's so many uh, uncertainties about the just the performance of the candidate vaccines that we've all gotten ahead of ourselves based on the oh, will it be available by election day? Um, when the reality is that we re- even if there, one of these uh, candidate vaccines is actually a, you know a, a, as close to a perfect vaccine as you can get, it's you know super effective and, and long lasting. There won't actually be any way to know that. Uh, for quite some time, in, you know, you can't tell that immunity lasts for years until people have had the vaccine and had immunity for years. So we've got a ways to go before we're sure exactly where we are with vaccines. Um, certainly, everyone involved in the development feels optimistic about what they've seen thus far, that uh, one or more of these candidates will actually work at a level that's meaningful. And then, you know, to get back you know, uh, the flu vaccine uh, varies from year to year and how protective it is, but it makes a huge difference. And we we can generate our normal lives with some risk of, of getting the flu. So hopefully we're at least in that situation uh, by this time next year. Well, and your point about the distribution issues is one that I think probably most people don't understand. I mean, I'm going to preemptively be outraged by the fact that I am probably number 253,978 to get the vaccine. Um, but I think well, at your ripe old things. age, you might you might be able to get it sooner. You might get lucky uh, based on, you know, I know you're you know, I like don't, to... don't think I'm that lucky. But I think most people will, <laughs> I think most people will believe that when they hear that there's a vaccine, that they should be able to go and get it in the near line future. up and get it. Exactly. Yeah, we know that's not and, uh, how this is going to work. And that will definitely not be the case, you know, uh, in, say, the next three to six months, uh, even if vaccine is approved tomorrow. Um, there will be some, and, and, and the way this entire uh, pandemic has played out, there will also probably be consider, considerable variability depending on where you live and who's in charge of, of making those choices. So one part of the country, a certain group of people might be getting vaccinated and who can't get vaccinated in a different state or region. Right, because they've It'll left be it up to the states to, to figure out how they plan to do that. And as you said, that's going to vary from state to state. So. All right, Mike, let's move on to our next next segment, uh, Diagnosis, which we will look at an issue a little bit more in depth. Uh, with an election coming up, how do you think the election will affect the FDA? I mean, maybe looking at it, both a potential Biden administration or a continuation of the Trump term. Um, we've gone through a number of FDA commissioners, whether they be uh, confirmed or interim, in the first Trump term. Um, who do you think we might be looking at potentially or the type of person we might be looking at if Biden takes over? And do you think we continue to have that sort of turnover uh, in a second Trump term were there to be one? Yeah, that's a great a great question, obviously an, an important one. And you know, kind of the, one of the oddities I would suggest uh, as you try to think about what FDA is gonna look like in the future, to me it's it's sort of easier to get an image of what uh, FDA under a Biden administration might look like than it is today what it would look like if uh, Donald Trump is reelected, uh, which is odd. Because usually uh, when you think the current administration is coming back, you say, well, it's just going to be the same. Um, so I'll, I'll just start there. The scenario where, where President Trump, you know, comes from behind here and is reelected, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, we had Scott Gottlieb as the commissioner originally, and, and he left at the start of uh, 2019. 
and then it's a interim commissioner for six months and another interim commissioner for about a month. Stephen Hahn was finally confirmed in December of last year. Um, you know, I'm not sure what Dr. Hahn's hopes and dreams were in taking the job, uh, but I would be astonished if he stays on uh, into a second Trump term. The way things have gone, I think it's pretty clear that there'll be a lot of turnover in HHS. I very much doubt that Secretary Azar will uh, be back for a second term, and I very much doubt that uh, Commissioner Hahn will come back uh, after the election or after the uh, inauguration for a second term. And that then leaves open the question of who uh, Donald Trump might have running HHS and who they, uh, they might have running FDA. And you know, <laughs> the range of possibilities is really quite astonishing in that scenario. Um, but even leaving aside the leadership, you know, I also would speculate that a, a re-election of uh, President Trump, particularly after how uh, you know how in the media, the partisan fray FDA has suddenly found itself, I think would also have a uh, the potential that a lot of folks within the agency who probably didn't vote for Donald Trump the first time and were definitely not excited that he won, but have uh, soldiered on for four years, there might be uh, a real lack of interest in continuing to do so for the next four years in the event of a re-election. So I'll be keeping an eye on a lot of the more uh, senior established career leadership who've really built the culture and climate at FDA and whether they would, you know, kind of just decide that enough is enough and they're going to move on uh, in the scenario where, where President Trump is re-elected. That's a risk, honestly, either way, because there's a bunch of folks who have been at the agency a long time and one way or another, we'll move on eventually. But um, so I guess I would think uh, in a weird way, I'm sure the reaction in the short term for Donald Trump winning is it's kind of business as usual at FDA and to a certain extent it will be. But I would be actually quite nervous about um, whether the climate we've had at the agency really for the last almost 10 years now, but certainly the last five would be sustainable for much longer in a second Trump term. Uh, a Joe Biden victory obviously brings tons of changes, uh, you know, a new new leadership across the department and certainly at FDA. Um, I think the immediate reaction uh, appropriately from most investors would be to be a little skittish that things are going to change or get tougher. And that's that's you know not entirely wrong headed. Um, for me, I, I feel similar to the way I did uh, four years ago. When I thought, you know, if you were going to if you were going to guess what a new FDA commissioner would look like under a Republican, I said, just think about Scott Gottlieb and that I said, that's the kind of person. And it turned out to be exactly the person. But I think, the, you know, the, that's the that's the sort of individual that a Republican would have chosen. And maybe even surprisingly, Donald Trump, who is an unconventional Republican, ended up making a somewhat conventional FDA commissioner choice for for. You know, a Democratic administration, I think folks should look at someone like Josh Sharfstein, who was a, like, uh, like Scott Gottlieb, had previously been the deputy commissioner at FDA. He was there at the very start of the Obama administration. And kind of like Scott Gottlieb, you know, he was following FDA before he joined it, and he's been following and, and you know, involved in and engaged in policy issues since he left the agency. And again, it's not to say he will be the commissioner, but someone like him or who thinks like him would, would be quite you know, the kind of profile I would be looking at. 
and I think the the reason it might um, uh, at least initially uh, uh, be I, I don't want to overstate it, but it might be troubling to some biotech investors is I'm sure there would be some conversation or discussion around things like has accelerated approval gone too far? Have we gotten too easy? Should we, you know, demand more prior to approval of some of these therapies? And I bet there would be a sense that some of these closer calls that have tended to go in favor of sponsors would start to really start to trend against them. Um, but I guess I would argue that probably, you know, just thinking about the, the long-term health of the agency as a, a credible and confident regulator, that probably ends up actually being better over the over the medium term. You're you're much more likely to retain some of the talented people who are at the agency now who are excited about their mission. And ultimately it's it's really about having uh confident and credible regulators that, that works out the best for the drug industry, even if that it feels like a, a little period of um the pendulum swinging back a bit from where it's been the last few years. So I sort of a long and quasi-vague answer, you know, I suspect the investor reaction would be a Trump re-election is, you know, really good news. Things are, things are just like they have been. And uh, a Biden victory is a little more unsettling. And that's not an unreasonable reaction in the short term. But I, I would certainly argue, as you think, two, three years out, um, there's probably less risk to the agency if Joe Biden is the victor. Mike, I don't think it's possible to even overstate just how important the leadership at the FDA right now is and how much credibility they've built up on the Hill and, and in the administration and, and just how, um, I mean, they've been there a long time, but they've also I mean, it got to the point where, honestly, Janet Woodcock can, for all intents and purposes, make a drug happen on her own and nobody even complains about it. Nobody looks twice. That's a type of uh, autonomy that very few regulators have. And it's, it's been questioned a bit of late with, with the president and some others kind of stepping in there. Um, I mean, do you think that they're that concerned or that they might leave? I mean, uh, what, the big issue has been that this, this uh, group of leaders and, it, you know, Dr. Woodcock being key among them, but there's a there's really a large, relatively large group of them who just who who've been together for quite a long time. You know, right? um, but you you start to realize that at some point, you know, all of these people will be leaving the agency, and the question is, are they, you know, are the people who are stepping in behind them, you know, someone like Rick Pazder in the oncology group, for example, is another one who's hasn't been in the agency anywhere near as long as, as Janet Woodcock, but he's been there for 20 years. <laughs> and so w w when they leave, you know, do their successors step in and, and just continue as they have and feel the same level of self-confidence to keep doing it and, uh, and have that same uh, credibility with, as you mentioned, folks on really both sides on the Hill, or, you know, are, are they stepping in and, and finding themselves facing for the first I'm, you know, the type of criticism that both Dr. Pazner and Woodcock used to have to deal with and overcome, you know, and, and how do you react to that? Never had it before. So the the climate where the transition happens will be really important. And, and uh, you know, again, I, I don't, don't have any particular knowledge about what anyone will do uh, after the election. It, it, it's to me that there is a large group of folks there who probably were – 
shocked and astonished that Donald Trump won, and they weren't overly excited about it, but they uh, soldiered on. And I just wonder if uh, if the odds of them signing up for another four years of trying to soldier on, how great that will be after the last few months, and thinking about the potential of, of this kind of climate continuing indefinitely. With that, let's move on to our last segment, which we call prognosis. Um, we're going to look at upcoming events outside the FDA that could have an impact on the drug sector. Mike, I wanted to ask you to revisit a topic that we've talked about in the past. Uh, the president, uh, since we last uh, did our podcast, has issued even more executive orders. Uh, he released uh, several over the past month. Do you really think we're going to see any details more than what we've seen? Are, are any of them going to be implemented? Um, by my count, you've got one for reimportation from Canada. You've got one for Medicare Part B, Part D. You've got the rebate rule. Um, I'm probably missing one or two here. Um, are these all for show, or do you really think these anything comes of them? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, it is remarkable how many uh, headlines President has been able to make out of fixing drug pricing. Uh, and, and not to say that there's been nothing that's happened as a result, because there actually has been over the four years of, you know, a fair number of uh, changes around the margins in different programs. But, um, you know, it, you, you mentioned the Part B and now Part D uh, most favored nation rule, as, a, as he's, uh, the president refers to it now. You know, by my count, that's that's been like it's been national news that the president is getting uh, international level prices for U.S. drugs in Medicare. Uh, at least four times based on the same uh, proposal, um, which at this point is still not even issued as a proposed rule, much less a final rule, much less as an operating program that will involve, you know, vendors, signing up physicians and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been an amazing source of, of headlines that, that uh, seems to give people the impression that the president has done a great job on drug pricing. If you look at the polling data, it's one of the few issues, I mean, it might be the only issue in healthcare where he polls better than Joe Biden. Um, you know, but the, the headlines are, are, are what the president and the, the follow-through is, is there. He's, uh, he's great at signing an order and then uh, campaigning on, you know, the policy that implies having already happened and had the result that he intended, which is usually about eight steps later and not always where things go. The one word you didn't mention was something on 340B pricing, the drug discount program, focusing specifically on insulin. It's a very esoteric issue that, you know, if implemented would mean uh, federally qualified health centers would have to uh, charge no more for insulin than what they pay for it. And at least for some insulins, that would be a penny. And I think that's why during the debate, uh, if anyone remembers that, seems like a lifetime ago, the president said, you know, insulin is now, you know, it's cheap like water or it's just like water. And people were kind of baffled. They had no idea what he was talking about. But he was talking about that executive order, which he did sign. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not only has it not been implemented, it was supposed to come out as a final rule, which would take effect relatively quickly. And instead, based on a lot of pushback from the health centers and others, uh, it came out as a proposed rule. So now it's subject to comments that go past the election. And if it were to be implemented, you know, next year at the earliest, 
Well, it, it already served its purpose. I mean, he, he's telling people insulin is now as cheap as water, and that was the, sort of the intent of the rule, not the reality. So there's an awful lot of that kind of, you know, translating the, the headlines, uh, which repeat policy ideas that have not gone anywhere in this first term, and there's no reason to think they're going to get done before Election Day. Um, I guess I would say there's one uh, policy that has advanced, at least in the regulatory form, which is the reimportation rule. That is an FDA rule, as a matter of fact, but it uh, is intended to address drug pricing by allowing states like Florida and others to uh, create programs that import drugs from Canada and make them available to their uh, consumers at Canadian level prices. And that's a, you know, it's a, 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 it's an issue that's been talked about for 20 years now um, that people should be able to, you know, there's no reason why people in the U S shouldn't be able to access drugs at Canadian prices. It's a, it's a, a lot of reasons why it's not a very smart way to get, you know, to get to that goal. But now the reg has come out and again, um, you know, it, it, it's actually a final rule. It actually is on the books, and it actually still doesn't mean that anyone is importing drugs from Canada just yet. Uh, the rule has a 60-day delay before its effective date, and I believe that puts it right at December 1st, when the rule actually formally takes effect. And that is when Florida and those other states can actually submit an application, essentially, to FDA, to get permission to run an importation program. And FDA is supposed to consider that application and make sure that it can be done safely and save money for consumers, both of which are not obvious that they're going to be all that easy. And with no specified deadline, FDA is supposed to respond to Florida and say, sure, go ahead and do it. Or if they disagree, they say it's not good enough, you can't do it. So again, we have something that um, you know, won't have an impact till well after election day. Yeah, you know, the caveat being that uh, importation is very popular with Democrats. So uh, this one's on the books. And I suspect that its real future will depend on litigation um, as well as I would almost argue that a Joe Biden victory makes it more likely that the administration will continue down this path uh, I think a Donald Trump re-election, and it's possible they'll just lose interest in the whole thing and forget it was even on the books. But, um, you know, that's where we are. There's uh, The headlines are terrible for the drug industry. The ability of Donald Trump to get this attention is definitely not helpful, but the substance so far has not matched up to anything like uh, what the president describes as having, uh, uh, having been accomplished. And the Canadian uh, reimportation is... is really interesting because the Canadian health minister has said that they will not allow the Canadian pharmacies to, uh, you know, to participate in this because there aren't enough drugs left over uh, to, you know, to return to, to, to the U.S. In any, in any sort of bulk. Um, and New York is another state that wants to do this. And I, I think I mentioned this on the last time that I, I looked it up. And when you add Florida and New York together, it's bigger than Canada. And we use a lot more drugs per person. So I can understand why the Canadian minister would think that that was not the best idea. However, I think you would, I assume you would agree with me that just the fact that they're, the federal government is moving in a direction that appears they're going to say that reimportation is safe and can be done safely 
is a bad precedent for the industry that this would be the first administration that's even entertained that in any way. Um, so I think in, as a as, as a precedent, it's very bad, but I, I, I think you're right. As a actual thing to lower drug prices, it's probably uh, less interesting. Yeah, exactly right. And and of course, I always highlight Florida, and as do you, because we know that's uh, very uh, near and dear to the president's mind when he thinks about this proposal. It's uh, really all for him, all about the electoral votes in Florida. Yeah, but plenty of other states want to do it. <laughs> uh, I think were it to work, most states would. But I think we're yes, in agreement right. that it won't work that way. So. Well, with that, I think we're bumping up against our time. Um, Mike, thank you as always. Uh, always fascinating and always plenty going on. And uh, every time we do one of these, we think, oh, well, I wonder what we're going to talk about next time. And lo and behold, we never have any problems. So um, hopefully everyone uh, enjoys this and we'll get back to you maybe uh, about a month or so from now. We'll be right up against the elections or maybe shortly thereafter. We'll figure out what the best way to do it is at that point, And I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about. So Mike, I can't thank you enough as always. And thanks everyone. Be well and hang in there and we'll talk to you soon. Bye now.